here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, songwriter, guitarist and composer. It is the one and only Ian Matthews, who I spoke to very recently to find out about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. One time member of Fairport Convention on their first two albums. Also was Matthew's Southern Comfort in the early 70s, plain song, and has gone on to do a prolific solo career and has written a book very recently, a memoir titled Through My Eyes with Ian Clayton, which is available from all the bookshops and also online. So anyway, this is the interview. You're going to find out much more about Ian Music and everything else. Anyway, after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was really right in the book and, um, yes, how that was for him. Anyway, Ian, it's over to you. Um, once I got into it, yes, it was, it was something that uh, I was a little bit afraid of in the beginning because... Um, the difference between writing a book and writing a song is uh, uh, pretty significant. And um, I just wasn't sure that I could, that I could actually, um, that I had the tools to, uh, to be able to remember everything. But um, uh, writing it with Ian Clayton uh, was the key because he knew he knew how to get all that stuff out of me. Right. Um, Did he keep, was, was very, it quite good? Was, was it quite a discipline? It, it was. Yeah. He, he uh, I mean, he's a, you know, he's an established writer and um, he's, he's co-written books with people before and he just had a system to, um, you know, he started with the broad strokes and then, narrowed it down and narrowed it down some more and um and it's like anything else once you turn on that faucet it just kind of keeps falling until there's nothing left <laughs> was it quite therapeutic <laughs> yeah it was actually yeah yes i mean was there was there bits that you really could say yep yeah, i can remember that really well other bits which were a little bit more vague that you had to sort of dig down and do some bit, a bit more research into some one or two years or one or two albums? Uh, there were, the, the musical part of it was quite easy. Uh, the early, early years were difficult. Uh, I, I, I somehow had kind of blocked out a lot of my, my childhood and my, my teenage years. Um, and uh, I really needed Ian to, to get in there and pull and, all that stuff about yes absolutely and also i mean just as a curiosity on that point i mean i was born 1964 so i'm now in my late 50s so my my early musical awakening i suppose was the the early 70s the very early 70s sweet slade t-rex gary glitter unfortunately uh -huh. um david <laughs> bowie was my first single and first love with space oddity that had the b-side of changes and velvet goldmine so i thought all b-sides were going to be that amazing did you did you have a kind of a musical awakening that changed everything for you i think um yeah very early on before i even 
got into music really um discovering that um that people like uh, Curtis Mayfield and and uh, um Otis Redding existed that was a that that, that was a, a big one for me um i i just uh, all i knew were the english uh, the english charts you know we didn't have a tv at home until i was um in my late teens um right so all i had to go by was the radio and what whatever the bbc played was was what i knew uh until i left school and then i started exploring some more and then you talk about music with your friends and somebody said well have you heard this and have you heard this and then someone told me about the impressions and uh that really that was the first lp that i ever bought and that really opened the floodgates for me i i didn't realize that there was music beyond mike berry yes well absolutely that was quite funky actually you went you went in at a high level there didn't you really <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> Yes, that was quite. So that would have been. Is that the late fifties, early sixties at this stage? That was uh, sixty-four, sixty-five. Right. Yeah. So you brought you were brought up, or or your childhood years was Scunthorpe, wasn't it? Yeah. And then yeah. you left school at sixteen, sort of in the very mid sixties, to become a sign writer, which was quite an interesting one. In those days, it was quite the, the apprenticeship is quite brutal, isn't it? And a bit sort of. I don't know, not bullying, but it's probably bullying. But there was also, yeah. of, um, you know, it was kind of working on the young man to almost break their spirit. It didn't sound like a lot of fun be, being sort of, I don't know, you were talking about being a primer, which in in my <laughs> experience is something that you try to avoid doing, but you should do, and then you regret if you don't do it. But yes, how many years or how long did you last as the primer? Yeah, it was that was a, it was a miserable experience. That uh, I mean, I I didn't leave school to become a sign writer. I left school and ultimately became a sign writer. <laughs> um, my my plan was to stay on at school and and take further education. Um, but what I wanted and what the school wanted were two different things, and. Um, I didn't realize until about two weeks before the summer holiday that I was actually going to be leaving school. Um, so it's quite a shock for me. And, and of course, I, I had to hurriedly get a job, and uh, which, which my dad uh, facilitated for me, and uh, that that became my job as a as a primer. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I mean, it. it it wasn't a title. Being a primer wasn't a title. It's just what I did. You know, when you, when you go into that trade, you start at the bottom and that is the bottom. You're, you're confronted with, with a pile of, uh, uh, of wood, of, of sheets of wood, maybe 10, 12 feet long and uh, a stack maybe six feet high and everything needs priming, both sides, all the edges. And that was my... That was my first three months of, of of getting into that trade. Yes, I mean it is quite grim, but I guess at that stage in the sixties, there was a lot of asbestos going around. So thank God you didn't end up 
working with asbestos because that was kind of one of these new magic materials. I think poor old Mickey Most, um, he died of some related thing. And um, it was kind of slightly traced back to the studio that he kitted out using asbestos. Oh, yeah. And so it was like, yes, but they, they, there was a lot of things that people did in those days where I know people go on about health and safety, but it's it's generally a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, yes. most of my time, most of my time then was spent on the outside of the houses rather than the insides. So, protected your lungs anyway. So, when did you get your first musical instrument? Then, at this point, oh, much much later. I well, I actually bought a couple of guitars um, in during that period, but I I didn't know what to do with them, um, and I basically. Uh, propped them up in the living room and looked at them. I, d I didn't know anyone uh, who pl who played guitar, so I didn't have anyone that could tutor me. Um, I, d I don't know what I was thinking. I just saw this guitar and fell in love with it. It was just such a beautiful thing in a secondhand window, and uh, uh, I, ha I had to have it. But once I got it, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I didn't actually begin playing until after Fairport, so qu quite late. Yes, it's kind of a strange one, isn't it? So sort of 65, I think you moved down to London to start to sort of experience another another chapter in life. What was 67 like for you? Did you, were you, because you were at the perfect age to experience that kind of cultural transition, really, wasn't it, from the sort of the rather drab period of the early 60s to the summer of love in 67. Did you, were you sort of slightly surfing on that zeitgeist at this stage? Uh, I'm not sure that, I'm not, when you're, when you're in, caught in the middle of it, I'm not sure you quite realise what it is that's going on. I mean, I was, I was so focused on, um, I, I, I did notice it uh, working in Carnaby Street. Um, how could I not? Um, but once I left, uh, once I left Carnaby Street, it it I was aware that there was something going on, but I didn't really feel part of it. Maybe because I was so focused on developing whatever it was I had, um, and. Everything else was just kind of a sideshow that I didn't pay a lot of attention to. Yes. And did you did you have that kind of creative urge at the time? Though you were working in a shoe shop, weren't you? So you must have been on Carnaby Street. It does sound like you would have been meeting some cool cats, as they said back in those days. Because you mentioned <laughs> things like, you know, uh, what's that? Lord Kitchener's ballet. And um, I suppose yeah, you'd, yeah, have, yeah. you'd have had all those kind of uh, granny takes a trip and all those places. So you weren't you weren't sort of indulging in those kind of worlds. You were were you indulging in the sort of more musical, creative world? Yeah, I, I, I was very focused on, on getting to where I, I thought I needed to be. Um, and fashion wasn't that important to me. Of course, it's once you start once you're in a band and you start uh playing uh, that then the 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 fashion part of it comes into it but it it was a it was a small um it, it was a small consideration for me M music was was uh music drove me that yes just find finding out what i had and what i could do with it and what was going on and you know what my limitations were and 
Yeah. Yes. So when did you discover your voice? Because because it's something quite deep, quite <laughs> about deep. a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because singing, you know, it's quite a, a raw and exposing experience, isn't it? So did you have did you have a confidence in yourself to to sing? Um, I suppose I must have had um some sort of confidence. Um, I find it very difficult to listen to the type of singer I was back in the sixties. Um, I'm I'm very I'm very critical of my voice, and um, uh, I always have been. Uh, um, I, I think uh, uh, I must have been way back in the line when voices were handed out, and I I was given something that needed a lot of development yes um, but but at the same time a lot of perseverance what sort of bad were you going to see live shows at this stage in 67 68 were you kind of doing the circuit uh, the circuit <laughs> um well i i was going out to see uh live music a little bit when i was still living at home i can remember um uh, seeing um Van Morrison with them and Herman's Hermits. And, um, I remember uh, when I was about 15 going to uh, Sheffield, which was the nearest uh, metropolis, going to Sheffield and seeing James Brown and uh, uh, Otis Redding and uh, Chuck Berry and stuff like that. Yes. Um, once I got to London, it was a, it was a whole different thing. Um, I, I really just kind of went to see the types of acts that I thought could help me on my way. Um, and once I started playing, um, then, um, again, it, it, it narrowed, I, I narrowed it down even more and, um, I would just, um, I started just going to see uh, uh, folk singers and um, acoustic acts. Yes, I was very I'm, influenced by, but I was very influenced by by whatever the other people in Fairport liked. Also in in uh, sixty seven, sixty eight, and I would I would end up going to see a lot of a lot of bands, uh, a lot of acts with them, um, and um, they they actually they actually guided me in, in a in a certain direction yes um and and and, and just kind of curious because you mentioned them how important was george best at this stage in the 60s to you <laughs> uh he was just someone i looked up to as a as a football player really uh, I don't, i'm not quite sure what you mean as him being well a, i thought a you were a man united fan I was a Man United fan, yeah, but uh, and of course, you know, George Best was an icon, but there were lots of other uh, uh, great players that I admired at the same time. Right. I, I never wanted to; I didn't want to be George Best. No, but you—this was George, you were the, at that age where George was, you know, almost pure as George could ever be, being young flamboyant brilliant you know you know unlike the 70s George Best and the 80s I mean this was the glory years and I just thought as a football you mentioned Man United and I just wondered if yeah if, if 
on the side, on on just watching, apart from the the music side, where you were thinking, my God, look at this player, you know, I've just, you know, been inside, and also they're running Europe and they're come back from the Munich air disaster. I just wondered, you know, one couldn't be, you know, football was changing a lot during that period, and Man United were the team, weren't they? Well, I followed, I followed all that, of course, um, and, um, and and I recognised. I recognized best for what he was and what he could do, but um, I had other favorites too. Um, I Bobby Charlton was a big favorite of mine, and Dennis Law. Yes, uh, absolutely. Pat Crerin, you know. And I didn't really, I didn't, fo- I didn't follow best outside of his football. I, 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 I didn't really care about what he was doing with his spare time or anything like that no but it was there was something beautiful about george and the way he moved the way he sort of i don't know there was just no one else quite like him at that stage and in, in my books anyway so um, my yeah. my my favorite memory of him and i can't remember the game that he was playing in but my favorite memory of him was um when he was he was somebody passed the ball to him and he began a dribble towards the goal and then he stopped and he took off his right boot and he continued the dribble with his right boot in his left hand and he actually scored a goal with his stocking feet and I I just found that remarkable a that someone could do that and b that someone would actually do that (laughs) especially (laughs) in those days when the pitch was not so many also yeah yeah it's not so grassy could have easily stuck in the ground really couldn't you but uh, anyway I was just curious because obviously this was an amazing time for for you know you were in London probably experiencing a lot of those kind of bands who were on the rise and it was still kind of a honeymoon period for the 60s wasn't it there was there was that summer of love things were still looking good there was the folk scene there was the rock scene there was psychedelia you know things hadn't slightly become murky Two yeah. years later, when suddenly you got the death of Brian Jones, then Hendrix, then Joplin, Morrison, Altamont, you know, and the sixties kind of crashed in a rather sad wave. So, um, yes, it was. I it just, was... Well, I just wasn't sure how permanent it was all going to be for me. So, I, I didn't, I took it all quite lightly, um, and I, it was more fascination seeing seeing how far this thing was going to take me, and uh, and and about enjoying the ride while I was there. I, I had no, uh, no uh, preconceived ideas about there being life after Fairport. No. Um, well, until couple... it ended. And then... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know if you saw the Martin Scorsese film Shine a Light on the Rolling Stones, and it was a record... Uh, a recording they did probably eight or ten years ago. It was in black and white, and there's but there's little yeah. cut in with little clips of them throughout the decades. And there was probably Mick in about sixty three being asked how long he thought it would last, and he kind of in a very innocent way just looks up and thinks, "Well, we'll probably be around for another year." And obviously, everyone in the audience chuckles because because I guess it was like, "We'll do this album, we'll do a tour," and we have no idea it's 65 it you know might it might be over you know and... i'm sure a lot of people thought that way at that particular time i mean it you know it, it, it in many ways it was the birth of 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 what we now know as rock and roll um and we, no one knew who who would sink and who would swim i mean it was it was just a it was a lot of fun you didn't we didn't have to have a day job. <laughs> no, this you is know? true. And, and 
But yes, because you lived in a quite an interesting community kind of set of flats, didn't you? Which sounded quite an interesting time as well. Uh, remind me. Well, there, did you mention what was it? You mentioned the kangaroo, can, kangaroo valley at one stage <laughs> in the book. <laughs> Court, you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I moved around quite a bit in those days until I actually met my girlfriend, who who became my wife. Um, I just uh, I would move around uh, on a whim. Um, I actually ended up in Earl's Court because Ashley, the bass player, uh, was living there and he wanted to be uh, closer to the band. And uh, one day we said, well, why don't we just swap places and I'll take your flat in Earl's Court and you can have mine uh, in North London. That that kind of stuff. Yes, very fluid living accommodations. <laughs> how did it, how did you get signed to the band at this stage? Where did you get discovered, and how did they know you were going to be the singer for the band? They came to see Pyramid. Unbeknownst to me, they came to see Pyramid play, and um, they were actually more taken with the songwriter guitar player Steve Hyatt than they were with me. Um, and it was Steve that they initially wanted. Uh, but Steve turned them down and said, you know, you, you, you don't want me. Ian is the one you want. You should go after him. And so they turned their attention to me. And yes, you couldn't you couldn't really you couldn't really refuse that offer, could you? And was Joe Boyd the manager at this stage? Yeah, he was the manager and the producer. And I think he was initially he was booking them shows, too. I mean, he was doing everything himself. Were you going to the UFO club and, and those kind of places as well at that stage? With Fairport, you mean? No, just as a punter going to the UFO club, which is... I didn't know anything about it until I joined Fairport. Right. Uh, my first experience of that was getting on the stage there and playing. <laughs> God, that's, <laughs> well, of that's course, amazing. after I knew of its existence, I would go down there to see uh, touring American acts. I saw the birds down at the UFO and Tim Buckley down at the UFO and Country Joe on the Fish. My God, that's just such a great lineup, isn't it? Really, it all—it it, <laughs> yeah. was the, the, the times of innocent music, really, wasn't it? So, yeah. um, yes. And what was your memories of the first album? Because you recorded that '67, which is the Summer of Love, wasn't it? There was twelve tracks, and um, you contribute. Is it "If" was one of the tracks you wrote with Richard Thompson? Yeah, I was. Uh, it was. It was. Uh, it was really my fledgling songwriting. <laughs> I mean, uh, Richard had already started the song, and uh, he he was bored with it, and he so he didn't finish it, and he kind of tossed it to me and said, "If you want to finish the lyric on this song, maybe we can make something out of it." Uh, so that was kind of my introduction to songwriting. And then I thought, well, this is kind of nice, this uh, lyric writing thing. And uh, so I started doing it a little bit more. And then for the second album, I, I wrote the book song and 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 gave Richard a melodic idea for it as well. And, and it just sort of blossomed from there. Yes, because there's, there's a track on the second album, the second one on side one, Mr. Lacey, which is about Bruce Lacey. Did you know much about Bruce at that stage? I did not. That was Ashley's fascination. Yes. He was, uh, yeah. He, he uh, I think he knew him though. I think they, I think uh, Bruce Lacey lived in Muswell Hill too, if I'm not mistaken. 
Yes, because um, because Bruce and Jill, his partner uh, at that time, and then for a bit longer in the seventies, um, they lived in the East Anglian region, and um, they'd oh. been they'd sort of. I think he'd done various kind of comedy things with various people, but then during the sixties and then into the seventies, he became very fascinated with the kind of more um he went to a lot of fairs and festivals and did lots of rituals and sort of interest in sort of stuff so bruce lacy and jill are kind of quite famous in this kind of area for their kind but of did, um, didn't he create machinery too yes yeah, so he yeah. did all these kind of strange and wonderful bits and pieces actually so he became sort of quite famous in the area so yeah he just lived near Wyndham and um yes we all went to see Bruce performing something quite often quite naked but hopping around with fire and um things going slightly okay. wrong but you know that was they was of, it's of its time you can see I think there's all been archived on the uh, BFI his a lot of his films I think there was one about the Lacey family rituals with a day in the life of Bruce and his seven children i think which is um, i think you had to see it to be there so when you i have to i have to say i i on, i only had a kind of a a fleeting interest in that in that song i i i sort of knew what it was about but it it didn't uh, it wasn't it wasn't something that particularly interested me i i thought well that's ashley you know he's it's another one of his eccentricities Yes, that's right. And did you enjoy the experience of the second album more than the first one recording it? I think so because it was it was more developed. It was um it was a little it was a more sophisticated album. Um the first album was basically um just um the band developing songs that Richard and Ashley had begun writing. And the second album was more of a shared experience. We, we everybody involved everyone else in the songs, and um, you know, I, I would work on a song with uh, well, I worked on a song with Richard. I would work on a on a song with Sandy. I'd work on a song with, um, and of course, Sandy was there at that point too. Yes, Judy was gone, and and that that created a shift in the stylistically in the band too when sandy came into it was that quite a difficult one at that stage seeing sort of people changing and moving and different characters and different kind of energy it didn't come as a surprise when judy left i i i saw the writing on the wall it was i think it was a difficult time for her because uh she she had trouble making sense of what was going on um but for me, it was exciting to have a different sing singing partner uh, initially. Um, and then I began to realize uh, how strong a character Sandy was and how much influence she was having on the band. And it all kind of slowly drifted away from me. Yes, because it sounded quite um, tricky at times when I think in the book you described sometimes waiting for her to appear for a show and and she still hadn't appeared and then suddenly you'd be doing the first number and then there'd be a roar in the crowd and it's like oh thank god she's turned up that was yeah quite... and yeah and i remember playing a show on hampstead heath and and uh coming out of a vocal and the and and the the big cheer came from the crowd and i thought well well i thought i did okay but not that well but... <laughs> And then I turned around and there was Sandy. <laughs> yeah. 
did did was there any friction in the changing rooms, the dressing rooms at times with the band? Not really. No, I mean, no, no. It, it, we weren't those types of characters, really. Um, I don't think we really. If there were problems, we didn't really talk about it. Mm. We just sort of muddled along until it was impossible to go any further, and then. At a certain point, you found out that your services were no longer required. Um, and I, I, it didn't just happen to me. I mean, it happened to Judy. I think it, it happened to Ashley at a certain point. Um, I, th- I think everyone uh, reached that, that crossroads one yes. way or another. Because it was quite a traumatic time because obviously, I mean, I grew up watching those Godfather films and Goodfellas. It it seems quite brutal the way when you describe sort of the meeting to say that you're no longer in the band. It was hard to take. Um, um, and it took me a long time to process all that and realise why I was no longer needed in the band uh, it wasn't so much that I wasn't needed. It was just the way it all went down. It, it, it just happened suddenly, but for them, it had been a slower process, but they just didn't involve me in that process. It, it wasn't as though they tried to get me more involved in the traditional music. They just followed their own path and when I started trailing behind, they decided that uh, they could do better without me. Yes, it, it was a, it was strange, really. Uh, it, it which is why it came as a big surprise. I, I I wasn't aware that things had reached the point they had. No, that is horrible. And then you have, you know, then you hear the car crash, which kills a member of the the band and sort of another person's partner. Mm. That. That was did. How did you feel emotionally? Because by then you weren't actually in the band, were you? No, but I was still very attached to them as individuals. I was still living in the Fairport house in uh, Golders Green, so I was still living with Simon and Richard, um, even though I was trying to develop something new of my own. We were still good friends, so it it was it was a big shock, and I, and I knew Harvey the the road manager very well. I'd spent some time living with him too over in Fulham. So it was, it was still pretty close knit. Yes. I will. When you're at that age and the first accident and first death in one's kind of age group and community, it's always a little bit of a, a hard one to uh, process really, because that's not the one thing that's on your mind yeah, um, yeah. at all. Were you coming across other bands at that time, like Comus and the incredible string band and, and uh, people like Al Stewart and Melanie from America, who sadly just passed away. Uh, how do you mean, was I coming across? Well, just it? kind of hearing their music, because especially the Incredible String Band and um, Comus, they yeah. were quite an avant-garde sort of eclectic bunch. Was that sort of a sort of music that you were starting to listen to as well at that stage? Because Well, all I, rather... listened, I, I listened to the String Band initially because... Uh, Joe was producing them and managing them, so they were they were part of that whole witch season uh, um, uh, management company. Um, but I didn't I didn't listen to them 
too much. I, I remember listening to them and deciding that it wasn't my kind of music. Um, but I, I was aware of pr pretty much everything that was going on around me at that time. Um, I had my favorites. A lot of my favorites were American. I was more, uh, I was more into um, Richard and Mimi Farina and Joni Mitchell at that point than I than I was Ralph McTell or Al Stewart. Yes, because oh, we love Joni at that stage, don't we? And there's a nice bit in the book where you're talking about Richard Thompson giving you some guitar lessons and showing you some some bits and pieces. That must have been such a nice touch on his behalf and nice to have received. Well, I went. I wanted to be a song. I wanted to be a complete songwriter. I wanted to be a, an independent songwriter, and the only way I could do that was to try and learn to play guitar. And uh, the only uh, guitar players I knew were Richard and Simon. And Simon was helpful too, but Richard was uh, was the real instigator for me. He, you know, he would show me chords and then. Uh, throw me out of his room and I'd go into my own room and practice the chords he showed me and then I'd go back and he'd show me two or three more and uh, he he sort of got me on the road and uh, but Simon too Simon was very helpful they all were they all were yes because you do it, I did, mean... it didn't matter that I wasn't in Fairport anymore it, it just mattered that that I had a good send-off Yes, absolutely. It's always nice to, it's nice to, um, if you have a good send off, at least you can sort of process and um, have better memories of one's friendships or community, actually. That's what I found in life. Um, yeah. Yes. But then as, as the, the the decade was closing, which is quite interesting, were you sensing a, a cultural change at that stage or were you just much focused on your own path from Fairport to becoming a solo artist? A cultural change. Well, I suppose at that point, the 60s were starting to get a little bit murkier and a lot of the, the drugs had taken a certain damage to people. And, um, yeah, things, you know, like I said, yeah. it was, it sort of death started to appear and then, you know, you had Charles Manson kind of appearing on the West Coast, which I know is not sort of in London. But, you know, you will often see with scenes, they can start with a quite an idealistic kind of dream and some quite interesting thinkers and then other elements start to creep in and it starts well, to get... I, I was aware of all that of course but um uh, you know in the same way that i was aware of of woodstock happening it was all most of it seemed to be going on at a distance um and i sort of paid half attention to it um but really i was more focused on the music and on on my own particular involvement in music and and trying to get it off the ground um, yes it it's not something that I, I don't think it really affected where i went musically or what i did musically um and i don't think it really affected who i became as a person um yeah Yes, but one one person that became a massive part in my life a bit later on in the decades was John Peel. So obviously yeah. he also appears and he's an incredibly important instigator and supporter of the band, isn't he? And and your own musical career at this stage. When did you first come across John? Well, when we uh, Fairport did our first session for him back in '67, um, 
and then uh, slowly we became friends i mean not not tight friends but kind of loosely sewn friends um but to the point where uh, when i left fairport john was the first person i called and and uh, asked if I, he could give me some time to speak to him about things and get some idea about what he thought i should do yes and and what was his t- top top bit of advice or support um he thought he he told me that i already had a profile because i'd been in fairport if i wanted to continue singing he thought rather than joining uh, a band i should create something of my own and use whatever information i'd gathered from being in fairport and all the outside influences i'd had during that period and and try and form uh, a a band that would encompass all that which is how i how i came uh to to uh put southern comfort together yes it's quite it's quite an amazing lineup you know the the kind of musicians you've got involved i mean did you feel quite a different person at this stage knowing that it was kind of your project but in this in this case you've kind of got all these amazing people like simon ashley richard and and sort of a whole team of of kind of incredible people well the yeah with the first album uh, uh it was at that point i was very much into uh the later version of the birds and the flying burritos and i i loved the idea of having um, a pedal steel guitar in a band and no one else in england was doing that um mostly because there weren't very many pedal steel guitar players in england i think there were two at that point and uh, so I, I made the first album and uh, invited Gordon Huntley to come down and play on the first album and loved the, the end result of that. And uh, once that album was made, then uh, I decided that that was the type of band I wanted to put together to, to uh, develop whatever my musical path was at that point. Yes. And, invi- and invited Gordon to be part of that. And of course, when he accepted, then Southern Comfort was born. With, uh, with the first album, there really there was no band. It was just uh, friends jumping in and playing on the record. Yeah, that's amazing. Because then, you know, and, and the one thing I've often noticed, especially around those two decades of the 60s and 70s, people are bringing out, they're very suddenly, when something works or happens, it is a yearly thing, isn't it? Suddenly... You know, it's, yeah. it's it's like suddenly you're onto the second spring. You've got another, you know, nearly nine, ten tracks on another album. So the yeah, I think I put out all three albums within a twelve month period. That's that's quite extraordinary. And yeah. were you had you been, you know, had you seen the film Woodstock and been, or was it the Joni Mitchell kind of um, influence that you had for covering Woodstock? Yeah, that I I I I took I took the song from Johnny's album, and uh, and we developed our own arrangement of it. Uh, uh, I don't think I saw the Woodstock movie till much later. Yes, and were you quite influenced at that stage? You mentioned the Flying Burritos. Was Graham Parsons somebody and that kind of country quality something that you started to become much more interested in than the yeah. kind of English folk side? 
I could identify w- with what he was doing, and I could see with the type of music I was creating uh, with my songwriting, I could see it. I could see it working with with that kind of sound, uh, and uh, I could see that with a little more hard work, I could bend it in that direction. Um, and I, uh, I think at the back of my mind during that period, my thought was to, to, to be the English Flying Burrito Brothers. Yes. Well, absolutely. Did you, of course, I, mean, I, mi- I missed it by quite a distance, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose at that stage, I mean, you know, it was the Rolling Stones recording Exile on Main Street, which has a, a lot of kind of influence from people like Graham Parsons and, I think Terry Reid was also making some music which was much more suited to the kind of West Coast of America. Yeah, yeah. And an Englishness. I, you know, I mean, there was just a sort of a love vibe groove going on really in some people's... It was the Lauren, Laurel Canyon sort of trip, wasn't it? Was that something it was that... All, it was all developing very quickly. Uh, music at that point was developing so quickly. I think, you know, you can look at 67 and, and then jump to 68 and it's just the the difference between the two. And then 69, it, it, it just, uh, the sophistication of it all just moves so fast. Yes. Uh, and, and people were experimenting with different sounds and uh, and different combinations. And English English acts were going to California to find out what it was all about. And I guess, yes, and I guess it's still people were fascinated with anything coming from the UK, really. And then Elvis, does Elvis cover a song of yours at this stage as well? Uh, not exactly a song of mine. He did cover a song that was on my first album. I yeah. Love You. This is the one. I've Lost You, it's called. I Lost You. Yeah, I've yeah. Lost You, yeah. yeah. It's a song that my managers wrote, and um, I, uh, I, I put it on my first album, and... As far as I know, that's that was the only recorded version of that song at that particular time. So uh, my uh, my thinking was that that must have been the version that Elvis listened to when he learned the song. Blimey, there you go. That's a nice little known, nice little <laughs> thought, isn't it? Elvis tuning into your vocal. Then um, and then, plain song appears. Did that? Did that start when Matthew Southern? finished or was it had they had the two straddled each other at this stage no that i actually I, I moved from um southern comfort into my, into my solo albums i did if you saw through my eyes and tigers will survive uh and plain song morphed out of that because andy roberts had been uh my right hand man in the studio for those two albums and of course when you when you get close enough to someone to uh where you see them every day developing your songs you begin talking about well what if we did this and what if we did that and wouldn't this be great and we found that we had similar tastes in where we wanted to go with our music and uh it was just uh plain song just came out of conversations about what shall we do next what are you going to do next what am i going to do next Yes. And and what was it like kind of were you just kind of very focused on your your own kind of world at that stage or were you kind of becoming aware as the 70s progressed that kind of the introduction of things like 
heavy rock or glam rock and and other sides or were you you know because that was kind of what was starting to you know penetrate and sort of dominate the charts at that stage I just wondered what it was like for you as a songwriter being a bit aware of a trend but not particularly wanting to go down that path well I I knew what I wanted to do and uh, and I followed that thread uh, and nothing really distracted me from it um, I wasn't the only one doing what I was doing. The, the, there was a whole slew of, of, of acts making more acoustic music. Um, it did reach a point where I thought, what's the point in doing what I'm doing in England when there are so many other people doing it more successfully in the USA? And it was at that point that I I thought <clears throat> maybe this is not the place for me. Maybe uh, um, I've gone as far as I can with with what I have, and I need to take it somewhere else and see if I can develop it somewhere else. Yes. And at, uh, that, at that at that point, I started thinking about going to California. And LA was call, calling you, wasn't it? Really, it really was. Yeah, and it was helped along by by uh, my record company. You know. Uh, Jack Holzman was in charge of Electra at that point, and he um, he he told me in no uncertain terms that California is where I need to be. Yes, uh, both for for Electra developing, helping develop my music, and for me to get more involved in in the direction I was moving in. And did you find finding musicians, but also producers? Because I think was it Michael Nesmith produced. Yeah one of your albums didn't he what yeah, was that yeah. what, what was it like sort of having that kind of cultural change from a sort of very Englishness having started off in Scunthorpe to London to you know bands like Fairport to suddenly being in LA with a member of the Monkees oh I think I was already as American as I was English at that point I mean even with Fairport um, a lot of our early influences, before they went off on the more traditional trail, a lot of our early influences were uh, American singer-songwriters, developing American singer-songwriters. You know, uh, Joan, when I was in Fairport, Joni hadn't had an album in it. No. Um, but we had access to her songs through Joe Boyd, Leonard Cohen. We had access to Leonard Cohen. Randy Newman, we had access to Randy Newman's songs. Um, so a lot of the music we knew in fairport was american music west coast music and um that that's kind of what i gleaned onto and 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 that's what stuck with me and that's what that's really what i began to develop once i left fairport so by the time i was in plain song uh, i felt as american as i was english even though i'd never been there yes and i guess that that stage everything about your style look was just very very suited the the environment really didn't it yeah well it was all those influences i was more influenced by the american style than i was by the english music and it showed in the types of songs i wrote and the way i i approached production for my songs and you were starting to come across people that i i sort of came across a bit later people like tom waits you covered one of his songs didn't you on here yeah days. Some days i mean once once i got once i got to los angeles the floodgates opened and I, I i i i 
they were very good about um, letting me into that the the songwriting clique that was there in LA in nineteen uh, nineteen seventy three, um, and because um, they were they were as fascinated with English music as I was with American music. So when I moved to LA. I was welcomed with open arms into that family of songwriters, the Jackson Browns and the and the Glenn Fries and the Tom Waits and the Ned Doheny's and the David Blue. I mean, it was it it was a uh, Gene Clark. It was there was just a big clique of songwriters in Los Angeles, and everybody knew everybody else, and everyone hung out with everybody else. And I just kind of slipped right into that. Yes. Did you go to the whiskey? Uh, the Troubadour. Yes. Troubadour was more the place where the songwriters hung out, the, the bar at the Troubadour. Right. Uh, I mean, I went to the whiskey, sure, but the Troubadour was the hangout. The, 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 the place to go. I mean, but did you ever get any sort of fatigue as the 70s progressed in L.A.? Was there a period where you were beginning to feel a bit burnt out with it? Not really. No. Um, no, I mean, uh, I, the first time I remember th- uh, thinking, uh, maybe this is it, maybe I've gone as far as I can, was much later on. It was in the early 80s. Yes. And had um, had sort of that kind of mo- other musical moment that happened in 76, 77, 78, the punk world, were you still kind of very much happy and sort of like in your LA kind of world, not to have any kind of much of an impact to that new kind of? Yeah, I was oblivious to it for the most part. Um, again, it wasn't until the late seventies that I, when I would go back to England to make albums, uh, that I became aware, really aware that there'd been any sort of movement at all because it it didn't really create a dent in the US at that point. Um, until the police and Joe Jackson came along when it when it moved from punk to new wave. Yes, and I suppose Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe and Elvis Costello. Yeah, yes, yeah, that, that, that whole movement. Yeah, would have changed quite a lot. Because in the book, because there's a there's a bit where you mentioned you you know was it seventy nine where you you find some was it some the Beatles files in a dumpster. <laughs> Was, yeah, I didn't. I didn't find them. I personally didn't find them. I was. I was made aware of the a set of contracts from their first American tour by uh, um, actually by Sandy Robertson, who was my producer at that time, and he was friendly with a an agent from NEMS, uh, which was um, uh, Brian Epstein's uh, uh, management company, uh, booking agency. And they were they were clearing out, <laughs> clearing out old files and throwing them in the dumpster. And they threw away the contracts, the agency contracts for the entire Beatles first tour. And Sandy's friend, who was one of the younger booking agents at NEMS, saw what was going on and rescued them from the dumpster and took them home. And at that point, began to tell people what he had mm. it was all very it was all very hush hush at the time because i think if nems had known that he was trying to sell 
the contracts from the Beatles tour, he'd have been in a, a whole lot of trouble. Um, but I ended up buying one. I ended up buying the Beatles at Shea Stadium. Nice. I think, yes, because I mentioned, I think in the book you mentioned what, you know, Ringo's kind of... Um, drum... Ringo's platform. Platform as well. <laughs> yeah, and you, and yeah. you framed it. Do, do you still have them? No, I ended up selling it when I lived in Seattle. Uh, there was a point where where I was cash poor and uh, I ended up selling it to Nancy Wilson, who was a big uh, Beatles collector. Oh, is that from Hart? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. God, see how these things move around. I wonder if she still <laughs> yeah, got them. No. Amazing. Because yeah. then as the 80s progressed, did you? when did you leave L.A. at this? Um, was that... I left you... LA the first time. I, I left LA twice. I, the first time I left in '76 uh, and moved up to Seattle um, and stayed in Seattle for about eight years. And then um, when my relationship up there soured, I came back to Los Angeles. Um, I think in '84, I came back to Los Angeles. Uh, so it was what four, yeah, eight years, right? Seattle, and I came back to Los Angeles and spent another well until I moved to Texas in '89. So I ended up spending another six years in LA. Yes, and then the Texas. I mean, because before that, you had you had sort of things to you know the business side as 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 everyone finds out, has to get taken care of. Because you mentioned in the book you hadn't got much money for your, you know, the single of Woodstock, and um, you had to get all that cleared up. Was was that something that started to uh, get unpicked as the decades or the years went by where you sort of were wondering what had happened to some of the money? Well, you know, I think my big failing in my career is that I, I didn't focus very very well on the financial side of things. And and that included contractual obligations. I did I didn't really focus too well on that stuff, and I let I let a lot of things slip away rather than challenge them. And and one of those things was uh, I I didn't take care of um, of uh, letting people know that my addresses had, had changed, and uh, so royalties were going to someone else and not to me and uh yes that, that kind of thing that kind of thing <laughs> have you has it has that all been tidied up now with some good advice and some management it has more or less i mean again you know i've never been too focused on finances i just believe that if, if you make money your friend it will come to you and that's kind of been my credo throughout my life and uh, what took what took it, you to Texas then? Um, again, I um, I went there initially uh, because a manager had told me that he had another client in Austin who he thought I was looking for someone to go on the road with, so I could go out as a duo. Yes, and um. My manager told me that he had a client in Texas who was a singer-songwriter, and he was also a, a producer with his own studio, and he thought we would be a good match. He thought he would be a good person for me to go on the road with and, and collaborate with in the studio. So I, I initially went to Austin to meet this person, uh, Mark Holman is his name, and um, 
we got on so well that it made absolutely no sense for me to stay in Los Angeles any longer. And um, Mark said, well, just why don't you just come to Austin and we can work much closer if you come to Austin. Because we were making records together and I was in L.A. and he was in Austin, Texas, and it just was quite difficult at that time. Um, you, you, you didn't have the same ease of um, sharing audio files that you do now. It was much more difficult to do that stuff because you were still working on tape. Yeah. Um, so it was a much bigger deal to 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 work from a distance. So I just upped and went to Austin, Texas, and thought, well, here we go. Here's another period of my life, another another era that we're opening up. And that's when you started to build a house. <laughs> yeah, eventually I started to build a house. Yeah. Did it ever get complete? And did you? I ever think live it's still. I think it's still being built, as far as I know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I kind of divorced myself from that when I left Texas, and uh, I I uh, I got married, and um, when I was in Texas, and uh, when I left, I just left, and I left everything um, where it was, and Cause, moved cause... back to Europe. Because you were, was it on Watermelon Music that you were on and they were getting into financial problems at this stage? Yeah, they actually, I think by the time I left, they'd, they'd actually folded. And um, the, I'd made, I think I'd made two albums for them and I was working on my third album when the, the, they were being investigated by IR, the IRS. And... Um, it ultimately created the collapse of the record company. Um, I don't know whether they were innocent or guilty, but I know the record company uh, ended up uh, being bankrupt. And uh, along with that, all the artists that were on the label too. Yes, because there, there was an artist, I don't know if it was the 80s or 90s, I became quite ex excited and obsessed with Julian Dawson. Had you come across okay. him? Was that in the 90s that you started to play, do you, uh, you know, as a sort of a package on tour? It was, um, I was still living in the US uh, when I met Julian, but I was actually on tour in the UK and I played a festival and um he was, I think I was touring with Andy Roberts at that point too. And uh, I played a festival in, in England and Julian was uh, playing the same festival. And out of curiosity, Andy and I went down to listen to him play. And and we were already talking about a new plane song at that point and uh, thought that Julian would, would fit in very well with our plans for the new plane song. Yes, and did I it? I think that was in eight, about 86, something like that. Oh, wow, 80, that far back. 85, 86, yeah. Because I remember an album he did called, I think, or a track called Uneasy Rider, which was quite a nice song. So. Oh, yeah, that was that was much later, yeah. That was much later. And because you'd, you'd worked with Bob, is it New Newith at that stage? Was Bob he Newith? Yes. Was he yeah. an, another artist you collaborated with or producer? I hadn't actually, I hadn't actually, I never actually worked with Bob. I ended up being on the same stage as him a few times and uh, recorded one of his songs at a certain point. But I, I knew of his legend 
uh, because of the the Dylan film, the Don't Look Back film. Is it Don't Look Back or Don't Look Now? Don't look. Must no, be one's, back. The, one's a movie and one's a, a Dylan documentary. And I always get them yes. mixed up. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's easy I, done. I, I, I was aware of him because he was one of Dylan's sidekicks back in the in the 60s. And um, I got to know him quite well when I was living in Los Angeles. And uh, so we became friends, but uh, we didn't actually collaborate at all. Yes. And as, as we were trucking through the 90s and we were getting towards the millennium bug and all that stuff, you make the big move to Holland at this stage and go leave America. Was that quite a, a kind of a big shift for you? Um, not. It was something I'd been thinking of for quite a while. It was something I felt I needed to do. I At that point, I'd been in America for over 25 years, and I just wanted to get back to Europe and try and learn to be European again. Almost forgotten what it was like to be European. I, I wasn't enjoying my time in America, and I certainly wasn't enjoying living in Texas in the last five years that I was there. And um, it was more for survival reasons that I moved back to Europe rather than I certainly didn't move back for career reasons. Um, I just felt a need to come back to Europe. Yes. Did you, were you, was it Amsterdam? Was, was there anything, because I know um, with a lot of artists, they often talked about, especially British artists, you know, touring Europe and how important it was and how much the German audience often appreciates the band and, German, you know, the, you know that, that particular tour around yeah. Europe and now, especially can Germany. I can I interrupt you for a second? I'm just going to grab a charging cord for my phone because oh, I yes. see that my power is low. Just hold on one Ooh. I paused it there. Yeah, I mean, I was just saying about, you know, I found a lot of artists touring Europe has been very important just to keep things moving and a certain cash flow. Did you find yourself becoming kind of kind of more well-known in Europe than, than anywhere else at one stage or discovered? It kind of was, yeah. I felt like I was being rediscovered in Europe once I'd moved back. Um, you know, when you, when, you, when you live on a diff another continent, people tend to forget of your existence to a certain extent. I mean, uh, they're still aware of it uh, within a, a record-buying community, but in, in general. Um, and I would only, I would come over and tour maybe, well, not even once a year, maybe once every 18 months. And even then it would just be a short tour, maybe two, three weeks. So yes. people, people tend to forget that you're out there and you're still active and still creating music. And once I got back to Europe and people realized that I was back, my, my work Ooh. Do -do -do -do. are you there? I am just about there, but you slightly froze on that point there. I think the the, the connection or the lead might have played a part. Oh, 
I'll just hit pause. I don't know what happened. No, it nothing, just nothing changed at my end. I could see you and hear you, and yeah, it was just that you were doing that. Oh. <laughs> okay, there Not you sure. go. It obviously, obviously, didn't like the uh, the electric boost. Actually, yeah. So we were just talking about Europe and the importance of Europe and being re-established, but also the passing of time. Did that help as well? Because I've noticed with some bands from the eighties or the nineties that I obviously love. Often they become sort of like Norman nomates. No one's that bothered. And then a decade or two passes, two or three. And then suddenly people start to appreciate them again and and not only discover their original, the work that they knew when they were growing up, but the sort of work that they did after that kind of so-called glory period. Did that? Did you find that happen to with you in, in sort of that period and in um, Amsterdam? Um, I think to an extent, it happens to everyone. Um, I I never I never felt that I'd been forgotten at any period in time. Um, probably because I I was always creating and releasing music. I never actually I never really went away. There was well there was a a a period. Um, when I was living in Los Angeles, where I, I stopped making music for a couple of years, but apart from that, um, I've never really, I've never really felt that that was the case for me. I, I, I know what you mean, but it's mostly when, when acts die that that. <laughs> that uh, there's there's a renewed interest in the in 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 their their work. Yes, because um, there was a record. There was a record label that picked I, I up. Think... God, sorry, I spoke over you. I, I think my I think my work has the interest in my work. It's like anyone else, you know familiarity really does breed contempt to some degree and i think like anyone else that's made over 40 50 albums there comes a point when um how much is enough you know how much how much of this person do i really want to hear unless unless they change direction drastically and, and give me something that i've never heard them do before so i I, th I think i think interest in my work has tapered off um but it's also a lot of it is also due to the what the music business has become in recent years. Um, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. No. I mean, uh, m my motives for making music has never really been to sell the music. My motive for making music has always been because it's in me and I need to bring it out and share it with people. That's that's always been my reason for making music. Yes, I was, and I know there was one record label that seemed to be very keen on indie pop from the eighties and nineties. Vinyl Japan—they also released some of your early work as well. Did they? Did they sort of do re, uh, not remixes, but remastered or put bonus tracks on? And how did they? How did Vinyl Japan sort of discover your work? It was a, um, it was a convenience, really. Um, as soon as I began going over to Japan to 
do live work, the promoter that I was working with owned the label Vinyl Japan. Um, and in order to create a stir about me coming over, we had an agreement that he would put out one of my albums before I got over there uh, to to get interest for the live shows. Um, and I think I did that two or three times. I don't, I know I was never really, it, it wasn't a label that I was actually signed to. It was just a, an agreement of convenience. Yes. And then, and then Cherry Red Records is another one of those labels that loves to repackage a lot of stuff, don't they as well? Which, um, well, no Ch Cherry Red, Cherry Red, I have a, a I have a, a, a real, um, agreement with Cherry Red has actually in recent years has bought my catalog um with the uh, the plan to begin putting out box sets of uh, of my work um that and so far they've done a couple i think they're on, they're on the verge of doing a third box set um but i rather than have rather than mess with my own archives or leave my archives for somebody else to figure out it's they came to me and said, we're interested in buying your catalog. Do you want to sell it to us? And at that point, I thought, yeah, why not? If if somebody's going to do something with it, I won't do anything with it. But if, if a label like Cherry Red's going to do something with it, then definitely I'm interested in passing it on. Yes, well, they are they are brilliant. I do. I'm a massive fan of Cherry Red Records. They do fantastic kind of box sets with brilliant sleeve notes, photographs, all the tracks you ever wanted and more. So would that be your whole sort of work with different bands and, and your own solo work as well? It's only the work that I own 100%. Um, so that wouldn't include the original um, Southern Comfort things. It wouldn't include um, my... Uh, CBS recordings. It wouldn't include my Warner Brothers recordings. Only things that I own outright, which began with um, my work in the late seventies uh, with um, uh, Stealing Home and uh, yeah, those kinds of albums. Yeah, and, and up, up to up to the present day. Yes, because you in in sort of your period during and still are in sort of the Netherlands, you've collaborated with a lot of different sort of more jazz influenced musicians, haven't you? Has that been enjoyable working with a completely different set of people? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it's something I've wanted to do for a long time. I, 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 I dabbled in it briefly while I was living in Texas. Uh, I, I met a keyboard player that I that was a jazz keyboard player who I wanted to work with. I wasn't ready for it at that point, so it didn't really develop into anything. But uh, since I moved here, um, I've, I've I worked for about three, four years with a, a jazz piano player, a composer too. So we were able to write songs together. Was that Egbert? Egbert, yes. Egbert Derricks. We put out a couple of albums, a couple of studio albums, a couple of live albums. Uh, it, it uh, it really um, it felt good to know that I I could contribute in that vein. 
Yes, absolutely. That's amazing. And then obviously in the book you mentioned sort of meeting your your future wife. So has it sort of the last 10 years been a much more sort of enjoyable period for you and a bit more stable, getting a home relationship, taking up running? (laughs) I think the whole uh, coming back to Europe decision was one of the best things I ever did for myself and for my state of mind. Um, I've now I've been here in the Netherlands now for uh, almost 24 years, and um, yeah, it's undoubtedly the the most stable, the most enjoyable uh, period of my life. Um, yes. And when did running start to become? Because I'm I have to confess I love running. So yeah. um, I wouldn't say I love it, but I I know it's good for me. When did you discover running? Um. Well, I used to do it in L.A. again, uh, I, uh, running, jogging, really. <laughs> <laughs> yes. More jogging than running. Um, and these days I walk more than I jog, uh, but I still like to get out there in the morning and uh, spend an hour. Uh, it's, it's just beautiful country like uh, getting out and walking and starting my day that way um i don't I, my knees are going so i don't really <laughs> i don't really jog that much anymore no well actually we're, we're always kind of a bit worried about that because you had sort of a few did you have some dates last year and the year before that you played live I um, well i play i play every year um, yes I mean, the only time I haven't played is during COVID, uh, like everyone else. Um, but uh, I get to the UK a couple of times a year now, and I, I go into Germany and play shows. And I go back to the US once, sometimes twice a year, and play in the US. And I've been back to Japan again, and uh, you know, I play in France, and yeah. I know, because quite a few people often have one other country which they get very sort of attached to, or the fans, they suddenly find they've got a big fan base. Often Italy and Spain. What are those countries like for you? Do they Spain like... is a dead loss for me. Germany is 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 a good country for me playing in. Right. It's always there's interesting. A, yeah, there's a really big interest in my kind of music in Germany. The Americana they call it, for want of a better term. Yes, because actually in the last few years there's been people like Wilco and Gillian Welsh and Stacey Earle and a huge amount of, you know, because I do love that kind of sound, Uncle Tupelo, those kind of, I don't know, yeah. rock country. Me, me kind too. Of... I'm, a, I'm a big Wilco fan. So I could imagine you fit in very well with those kind of narratives and stories and that kind of musicality as well because um yes there's something steve earl's another person who oh, I know yeah. he's, he's a bit more country but jeff tweed tweedy and people like that have always been sort of yes they've captured a certain imagination so yeah. what do you have sort of planned for 2024 and next year uh quite honestly uh, um my long-term plan is that by 25 I will have slowed down significantly. I'm trying to taper it off at this point in time. I'm about to, in a three weeks' time, I'm going to go to the U.S., to Philadelphia, to make what in my head right now is my final solo album. And I'll tour on that album a little bit, 
uh, I'm trying to, this year I toured half as much as I, uh, I mean, last year I toured half as much as I did the year before. And this year I plan on cutting that in half again. And um, I'm sort of easing myself into retirement at this point. Yes, there you go. So with the Philadelphia, um, Philadelphia uh, sort of recording session, how long will you be there for? I'll be there for three weeks. I'm going to do the recording. I have a friend in Philadelphia, a guitar player, a uh, composer who uh, I've been playing live with for on the East Coast for the last 20 years. And I promised him that before I retire, I will make a studio album with him. And this is the one I'm going to make this this record with him. Fantastic. Who's that? His name is Jim Fogarty. Oh, yes. No. Not John, but Jim. Not John. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, that's quite a... Yes, and all the material has been written, rehearsed, and you can just go in there and do it. Oh, it's been written. It hasn't been rehearsed. It, well, I've rehearsed it, but he, he has no knowledge of it at this point. We're going to spend the first uh, week going through material because I have way too much and uh, decide which dozen songs that uh, we'll put on the album. And then we'll spend the next two weeks recording the, the songs. And then I'm going to bring it back here and uh, have a friend here mix it for me. Fantastic. There you go. And are these all uh, songs that you've written? There's no covers or anything like that? There are some covers. There are there are a couple of covers. Um, there's um, uh, not necessarily anyone you've ever heard of. There's a Biff Rose song. Do you know Biff Rose? He was a songwriter in the 60s, an American songwriter. No, God, I'm thinking of something else, actually, Biff. Yes. And what... there's, there's a couple of covers in there, but they're from lesser-known songwriters, but they're songs that I've wanted to do for a long time, and this seems to be my final opportunity to do that. So. Fantastic. And then yeah. um, what label have you put this out, or will this come out on? Um. I haven't actually decided yet. I'm toying with the idea of not even putting it on a label. I'm thinking about just pressing up a couple of thousand copies myself and selling it out of the back of my car. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, at this point in time, I don't see the difference it will make. I, I, I think I can sell as many by doing it myself as I could with giving it to a record company. Yes. I haven't completely decided that's the route I'm, that I'll take, but it feels that that's the way I'm going to go with it. Yes, and and obviously, yes, and then you've got some live dates. Have you got those publicised yet, the live dates? I, I haven't really put them on the internet yet. I, I'm going to be, I'll be going, uh, I'm coming to the UK in June to play a few shows. Um I'm going into Denmark in April to do some shows and back to the US in September. Um, that's all I, that's all I have planned at the moment and quite honestly it may not develop beyond that. Like I said, I'm trying to really kind of ease down and uh, play play less and less. Yes. Well, that sounds like a nice way to sort of sort of taper off, really. I mean, you mentioned a bit earlier what you might have. Um, yes. I was just going to say, what would you have said or whispered to your like 16 year old self starting out in this interest and then sometimes murky world? You did sort of slightly allude to that earlier, but 
Um, was there anything else that you might have wanted to have told no. that 16-year-old in 1965? Just follow your heart and do it for the music and don't be sidetracked by the beauty contest going on around you. And did, um, I mean, just looking back at your vast catalogue, what, what period or what albums would you particularly fond of sort of either listening to or just happy memories? Of my own, you mean? Yes. Um, well, I, 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 I still very much like If You Saw Through My Eyes from 1970. Um, I very much like the Plain Song album from the Amelia Earhart album from 1972. Um, I made an album in Texas uh, in the mid-80s called The Dark Ride that I really like a lot. Uh, I made an album a few years ago, about three years ago, in Norway with a Norwegian band uh, called Fake Tan. I love that album a lot. Um, yeah, it's hard to... I don't, I don't necessarily listen to my own music once it's... Uh, one, once, once I've committed it to, to CD, I, I tend to not pay too much attention to it unless it, there's a song that I want to learn to play live um there's a couple of the, there have been some uh matthew southern comfort albums in the last uh, 10 years uh, there's a i have a dutch version of matthew southern comfort and there are a couple of albums that that we've made in the last 10 years that I, i'm very fond of uh one one is called the new mine um yeah i like to think that the next album i make will be my favorite Yes. Well, I, I remember when David Bowie was making his last couple of albums and they are kind of stunning and, and the maturity in them is, is quite interesting. Do you still, with your songwriting process, has that changed a lot over the years and decades or is it quite similar to what it was like in the beginning? Uh, it's nothing like what it was in the beginning. It's, I think it's more sophisticated than it was in the beginning. I hope it's more sophisticated. Uh, I, I, I really spend a lot of time on my lyrics, perfecting my lyrics, uh, trying to say the right thing, but say it in a literate way. I don't really... Uh, there was a, a time in my career where I avoided big words, uh, because I didn't think people wanted to hear big words in songs. Now I don't care if if I want to use uh, uh, bigger things like I don't know. Uh, there was a line in a song that I've that I've just finished um, where I sing uh, unfettered by the likes of me and. 20 years ago I would never have used that word in a song but now it's the right, it's the right word uh, and, and I don't care who likes it and who doesn't so I spend a lot of time editing my lyrics and making sure that I'm saying the right thing that it feels good to me yes absolutely because there was um, there was a lovely little bit in the book where you're in the corridor I I think you were waiting to talk to John Peel and Mark Mark Boland was sitting opposite and you both chuckle don't you and, a passage, mm. and you realise you're both reading Slaughterhouse Five. Have you always been quite an avid reader? And uh, yes, yeah, always been an average re avid reader. I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I still am. I always have two books on the go. Um, I, I actually just finished a Jeff Tweedy book, 
And uh, at the same time, uh, I'm reading a, a novel by, do you know Richard Powers? Have you ever read any Richard Powers? No, I haven't. Uh, he's an American writer, but he wrote this beautiful, beautiful book that uh, um, won the Pulitzer Prize um, called, um, <laughs> now I have to use my memory. Uh, uh, yeah, I can't remember the name of it. Um, but uh, I, I'm reading another Richard Powers book right now called The Time of Our Singing. That I just, uh, I, I'm a huge fan of his work, his yes. writing, his imagery. Do you um, always, um, do you alternate between fiction and nonfiction? I do. I try to. Yeah, I try to. To, to give me some perspective on 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 what I'm reading, I I, I usually try to read fiction and then and then read a, a music book and then go back to fiction again or uh, maybe something historical. I recently uh, read a book about um, uh, German immigrants back in the 1800s uh, in Texas and their children being captured by Indians, that sort of thing. Blimey, that is interesting. And because um, there has been a lot of very good music books recently written and published and um, out there. what um, Has there been any particular one apart from Jeff Tweedy that's caught your imagination or interest? Um, I've been, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what I've read recently. Uh, unless I have them in front of me, it's very... <laughs> yes, it's I have to. Very difficult to, to if if I can't, if I can't find a way into a book, uh, I usually, I usually put it down. Uh, and by finding a way into it, I mean if I'm not hooked by the first fifty pages, I usually put it down and try something else, and then go back to it and see if, see if it works again. And if at that point it doesn't work for me, then I'm done with it. Um, it, it's the charity shop, isn't it? <laughs> it's the charity shop. Yes, no, I just wondered if there was any particular book that um, write, um, musician or guitarist, songwriter that you'd read recently that you found quite a fascinating or quite a... Uh, the Bill Frizzell book. There's, a, there's a, a beautiful book about Bill Frizzell that I've recently read. Uh, are you familiar with Bill Frizzell? No. He's a guitar player, a... I want to call him a jazz guitar player, but he's much, much more than that. He's a, um, oh, you don't know Bill Frizzell. Okay. Bill Frizzell. Oh, Frizzell. He, well, I've, so he's the guy that is the go-to guitarist that um, a lot of, not quite Robert Fripp, but he's one of those ones, isn't he? That more, people... Robert, more Robert Plant than Robert Fripp. Yes. <laughs> but yes, it's a name that I've just suddenly, yes, I remember son, often yeah. seeing him. He's, he's kind of, oh, yes, Bill, Bill Fussell. I was just wondering, like you, I always have to sort of look at what my bookshelves have got. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yes, yeah, That's what I've been reading lately. But yes, yeah. there is a, there's a lot of good books. And uh, yes, people if have been... If I was sitting in front of my bookshelf, I could reel off all the books that I've read in the last year, but... Once I'm away from them, it's really hard for me to remember what it is I've read. Yes, well, I know, but it's I'm the same, really. It's almost like doing an exam when I was at school. Sometimes you just sort of got off stuck and stuck. But then, yes, unless it happens, it doesn't. 
Anyway, look, well, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing to get the the inside, inside story. But if you want, I can always um, send you the link to the interview and you can always put it on your social media platform okay. site, which yeah, is great. always good. But yes, thank you again for this. And um, like I said, it's been an amazing you must have had to edit a lot out because you've done so much, actually. It must have been tricky sometimes. I told, it... I told what I could remember. The only things that were edited out were a couple of things, um, negative things about people. And I thought, what is the point in being so negative about someone? Um, and so I left out a couple of things like that. But for yes. the most part... Um, what you read is what I remembered. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it was probably quite nice. I don't know if it's true, but um, my guess is sometimes quite nice to write those things and then just delete them and think, well, I've always wanted to put it in, you know, but I'm not to send it, you know, one of those moments where you think, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, you can, yeah. you know, you can feel kind of honest about your feelings, but at the same time, think probably best not to. My next project is to um, uh, write a coffee table book with uh, my complete lyrics in and anecdotes to go along with the lyrics whatever whatever i think of certain lyric and maybe it would be about the process of songwriting or maybe it would be about where i was when i wrote the lyric or what i was thinking when i wrote the lyric but that's 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 my next uh, project for root books to uh, to write the complete lyrics of ian matthews Fantastic. That's going to be a huge book, isn't it? Because you've got... Not as big as you'd think, David. It's. Um, uh, I don't think I've written more than two, three hundred songs. Um, yeah, it's going to be a big book. <laughs> and what about album covers? Because again, you've done so many albums. Will you include a sort of a couple of pages with all the album covers on? I'll probably do it chronologically and and put the album cover uh I, I will probably do it album by album actually so yes i'll probably feature the album cover and and uh yeah yeah that would be chronological it would be amazing well look thank you ever so much this has been amazing and um look. i've loved reading the book so that's been good anyway look have a lovely thank evening you. and again yeah. thank you for your time that's been amazing you okay Thanks, take David. care cheers bye-bye you too bye-bye and that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. You probably gathered that. Anyway, there was a few kind of tech technical moments, but um, nothing compared to the beginning when the computer wouldn't load. But anyway, that was all done on an iPhone. Marvellous. That's it. Technology at its best. But a massive thank you to Ian Matthews for his time. The book is, again, titled Through My Eyes, a memoir, and hopefully there will be more live dates and a live album coming up very soon. Anyway... Uh, this is the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Anyway, that's it. Have a great week. Stay safe.